tonight. Ted sang background vocals with those guys. He would go in and actually double Ed Van Halen's vocal part because Mike's voice was so strong. Back to Greg Rinoff taking us inside the world of legendary producer Ted Templeman, part two of our chat. He was able to basically get in with these guys in these bands and work with them on a musical level rather than just sort of going, you know, turn up the bass or we need, right. you know, whatever. He had this real musicality about him he does and i don't know that we're going to see big events before the fall dr arthur kaplan of nyu's bioethics even one person who slips in there can really infect a whole bunch of folks so no rock shows for some time but we talk rock here and it's showtime i'm ready to f party dave <laughs> all right shane settle down we'll get the party started hey producer man give me that fancy little intro thingy yay Welcome in, my friends. Oh, thank you. You guys are so kind. The Vinyl Master right here. Give it up for hey, him. Hey, hey, how's it going? The applause is for the Vinyl Master. Oh, That's yeah. really what it is. And the applause stopped right when you said Vinyl Master. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> That's the way it is sometimes. And this you got to love crowd. it. Tough you crowd it. out there. Hey, but I appreciate know. it. I've, I've been uh, <laughs> jarring and unaffected the last several weeks and, <laughs> and I just feel that I'm going to bring something to the table today. You so. can just feel it. You bring something every day. Oh, <laughs> well, thanks. So it's great to have you. Everybody, thanks for uh, being with us here. As you heard at the top of the show, Dr. Greg Renolf, part two of our interview uh, where he talks about uh, Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music, the book he did with the legendary Van Halen, Montrose, Doobie Brothers, uh, Nicolette Larson, producer, everybody, everybody. right? It's a fascinating interview and if you're a fan of music in general, not mm -hmm. even Van Halen, I think uh, Ted Templeman is just a incredible, yeah. incredible part of history. Yeah, and, rock history. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he's up there. He's way up there. Sandy Perlman, mm -hmm. Ted Templeman. Yep. We could go on, but you know what I mean. Yeah, we talked about the Sandy Perlman influence with Ross the Boss yep. uh, a couple weeks, a few, uh, maybe a month ago now, so that was really cool. But Bob Ezrin. Yeah, oh, yeah, one of There's my so, favorites. Yeah. I mean, Alice Cooper, Kiss, you know, Pink Floyd, of course. I mean, my gosh, you know. So many. Yeah. So, but Ted's Ted's in that in that realm. Yeah. You know, he's up there on he the is. pedestal for me. Yeah, no, same here. I mean, those, those original Van Halen records are just... Um, just tops. I mean, and even the Sammy Hagar stuff, the Montrose stuff too. Uh, so in part two, uh, Greg Renoff, the uh, PhD historian, rap doc, talks about the um, how he worked with Michael Anthony's background vocals and some really interesting dynamics there. Yeah, uh, it's you got to hear it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, we got Jay Sonica on the show too because we're talking about a big record uh, yeah, store. Yeah, this, this is big news. We talk about it. Um, and I'll, I'll bring it up real quick again, but uh, Amoeba uh, announced uh, they they were starting up a, this week. Uh, they were starting up a GoFundMe page because they're running out of money mm. and they want to pay their employees and pay their health care. And uh, you know, it's it's not easy in this world, as you know. And mm -hmm. they have 400 employees, so mm. um, and they have three stores and they're working on another store. So um, just really bad timing for Amoeba. Yeah. And I'm sure that their money's just tied up in expansion and other things, but uh, they're worried that they're not going to make it out of the recession. Wow. That's that's how bad it Terrifying. is. Terrifying. And they're a giant, right? They're the largest independent record yeah. store in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
they're, they kind of replaced tower records when tower went under. And if, wow. if Amoeba goes under, I mean, it's, it's just uh, people travel to Amoeba mm. from across the country. But that, you know? that's how much they, right. yeah, that's how much And just like when we went to see uh, Maiden, we ran into a guy that came from L.A. to Philly to see Maiden play mm -hmm. their uh, legacy tour. And there are people that <clears throat> um, go, to, go to Los Angeles and one of the first places I, I have friends that collect records and they'll spend two days in there wow. you know on their week-long trip that's how good the store is they're like kids in a candy store as the cliche goes right yeah. i mean they really are yeah so we lose amoeba it's going to be uh it's going to be a really really bad bad deal mm. and i'm just hoping that uh they can pull things through they're asking for four hundred thousand dollars and uh we talked to jason about uh how he's doing uh, it's been two weeks since we heard from him and uh he had some surprising things to say so that's coming up we'll have that for you and uh we got some all kinds of um, news here really interesting stuff uh rolling stones uh scorpions um basically we're talking about uh, all these artists who need inspiration right yeah and and even jason talked about this other people have said this if there's ever a time to find to be inspired to find that inspiration yeah. as an artist we were talking this about this a couple weeks ago yeah right? <laughs> with ozzy and and being locked up with uh you know like he's he's rushing to do a second album mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things we talked about was you know how is this going to affect artists creativity because artists tend to do well under duress it's notorious and they tend to do well when they're alone and they have all the time in the world to uh, create and develop mm -hmm. and in this fast-paced world a lot of that stuff is taken away from them when they're touring when they're doing this when they're doing that um, and the lockdown has kind of made us all have to kind of look in the mirror and uh, we got our first uh, first product I guess out of the gate yeah. from this and you have yeah. one it's the mighty scorpions yeah yeah the scorpions that's right so the article here from Blabbermouth, uh, Scorpions release uplifting new song, Sign of Hope During Coronavirus Crisis. Uh, German rockers Scorpions have released a new song called Sign of Hope in a statement accompany accompanying the YouTube release of the track. The band said, quote, we are working on lots of hard and heavy rockers for our new album these days, but because of the dramatic COVID-19 pandemic, we want to give you a little sign of hope that came straight from the heart in troubled times. Stay healthy and safe. We love you, Scorpions. So. Wow. Scorpions, uh, their next LP tentatively due in 2021, which seems like forever from now. Uh, yeah. It will mark their first release since 2017's uh, Born to Touch Your Feelings, Best of Rock Ballads. <laughs> Sorry, I always I know, it's a, it that, is a, a strange title. <laughs> uh, the German to English there, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Born to um, Touch Your Feelings. Yeah, right? It was uh, an anthology of Scorpions' new and classic uh, material. Scorpions frontman Klaus Meine, who's been on this show before, uh, recently told the... Um, the fan site, this is really cool how bands have their own fan sites. Genesis has a pretty good one, but uh, the fan site Scorpion News, uh, it's reading this through the mask, you know, wearing a mask now, it's yeah. like a little tough. Uh, said that he and his, he said that he and his bandmates have quote a lot of material written for the upcoming album, which will consist of all new songs. He said quote at the end of the day, whenever we have a chance to go to Los Angeles and join with producer Greg Feidelman to really get go into production, whether he comes over here to Germany or we go to LA. It depends on the whole Corona situation. I mean, since the lockdown is so bad for all of us in the whole world, so we're here and Greg's in LA and we're all in touch. 
via Skype and FaceTime, he said, and all of that to try to make the best out of it and to try to move on with the songs. So, like you said, a Zoom album. It's like right? a Zoom album, yeah. Yeah. And they get where they're eventually going to get together and then actually yep. record the record. Yeah, so they're, right. they're hashing it out. Yeah, that's what he says. He says, but of course we we all can't wait for the day when we can all be together with the whole band in the studio working with Greg, the Hans Martin Buff engineer. I think I've heard his name before. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that uh, to go back to normal life and hopefully we can all go back to our work and go back to our daily normal life. That's what's the most important thing for all of us right now. Uh, he continued, um, he continued, the whole world is going through very difficult times and it's yep. very scary and frightening, certainly no doubt there. Uh, we're all in a very privileged situation that at least we can be at home and we can work in our own studios to keep things going. After the tour we did in Australia and Southeast Asia, we had a chance to go back into the studio and keep working on new songs, write new songs, write new lyrics. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, especially in these days when we are all in a lockdown and we have no chance to go nowhere, really. We cannot travel, we cannot move, but at least we can be creative. We can take a deep dive into our own creative work and hopefully something good comes out of it. Boom. So that's awesome. That's what I, these bands are doing, yeah. I gotta ask you something though. Yeah. I thought the Scorpions were done making records like yeah, five I know. years ago. I kind of thought that too. I thought they were going to be doing these tours. Um, when he was on the show last year, he said they were going to go back out. They were going to do some of the <laughs> 80s stuff. Yeah. Because they were doing a lot of, I think they were doing a lot of the older the older material, you know? Yeah. Uh, but um, I got to adjust my mask. Okay, I'm better now. <laughs> I hate these <laughs> things. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not knocking the Scorpions. No, no. no. I, but yeah, it's... Um, fans, but... No, they're, but I thought the same thing. I thought they were done too, but maybe, the, you know, they're just getting inspired and uh, Rudolph's coming up with the riffs and... Uh, That's Mathias, awesome, you know, Matthias as well, right, Matthias? Yep. Matthias. Matthias, Matthias. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. His, I know. I've heard it different. I called him Matthias when yeah. I was a kid. Matthias. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know how to say it. I know. Yeah, I think it's Matthias. Matthias. Yeah, but um, it's, it's just cool. Fantastic. And, and now they they're they're reloaded with uh, Mickey D. Yeah. Motorhead. Oh my God. Let me Thunderfoot, man. The so guy, now yeah. they got they got this kick butt drummer, yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, it, I just. That's really cool. Yeah, he's got the, the double. He kind of reminds me of Herman in a, in a way, like the double, the setup, the double bass drums, and right. Uh, you know, but those huge mega toms and just. But he's such a thunderous player. Well, I just it makes me uh, excited to see what other bands are going to be doing. Yeah. In this environment, you yep. know, uh, using using the time wisely, and uh, this is their work, you know. So. Uh, Rather than sitting at home watching television, because there's only so much of that you can do, right? Mm -hmm. As you and I can both attest. Uh, no doubt um, about that. Yeah. Uh, put yourself to work. And, yeah. You know, and speaking uh, of, yeah, they're not the only ones, right? No, this one really gets me fired up. Um, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so many, a... so many different ways. <laughs> I'm like, oh, such a great. It's been track. a while. It's been I don't know how many years since a bigger bang. Mm -hmm. uh, those 2005. I we think. had the blues record. Yep. I'm not going to discredit it, but it's not, it was not a Stones record in the sense of right. a Stones record. And yes, folks, the Stones have released a new single. Yeah, 2005 was yeah, Bigger Bang, I think. Living in a Ghost Town, and living in a ghost town, that's why I said, I think I did, I don't know, I sure hope so. <laughs> Mick Keith, please don't sue me. Oh gosh, um, anyway, but uh, the song was written by Mick and Keith, mm -hmm. and uh, they both have explanation they're both a little different the explanations are both a little different mm. but uh mick says uh according to uh the news source 
which I forget because I cut it off the page. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'll pick it up here. Mick says, according to the news source, Super Deluxe Edition, that the Stones were in the studio recording some new material before the lockdown, and there was one song we thought would resonate through the times that we're living in right now, and so we worked on it in isolation. Mm. And Keith... Uh, said, uh, quote, we cut this track well over a year ago in L.A. for part of a new album, an ongoing thing, and then Beep hit the fan, and the pair decided the song, quote, really needed to go to work right now, and so you have it, unquote, mm-hmm. from Keith. So uh, I got to tell you, this song is, is really cool. It's classic Stones. I mean, it's so it's got the, the licks, the, the, the guitar tones that they're using, very clean sounding, very crisp. Yeah, uh, mixed voice reminds is just me of uh, amazing. Mixed voice is just getting better it's and better, like better or something. Yeah, I don't even know how to describe it yeah. anymore. But even on the on the when they recorded the or they performed the track for the the special, mm-hmm. the coronavirus special, uh, like a week ago. Yeah, the one highlight of that whole thing was Mick's voice. Yeah, Mick was right on. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, but this kind of has a, a feel. It's, it sounds like a classic Stone song. Um, it has some update, but it's just a very, very nice song. And yeah. the song directly deals with uh, being in lockdown and stuff right now. So it's like... A, it, it's, it's perfect it's, for the moment. I mean, the lyrics are pretty much... Uh, you can look for me, but I can't be found. You can search for me. I had to go underground. Life was so beautiful. Then we all got locked down. Um, so it's directly referencing... The situation that we're all in, mm-hmm. and uh, wow, yeah, poignant. I mean, so uh, you know, perfect for the times and where we are now. And uh, I mean, it's amazing. It really is. A little bit of sadness. Every night I'm dreaming that you'll come and creep in my bed. Please let this be over. Not stuck in a world without end. Mm. Uh, preachers are all preaching. Charities beseeching. Politicians dealing. Thieves were happy stealing. Widows are all weeping. There's no beds for us to sleep in. Always had the feeling that it would all come tumbling down. I'm a ghost living in a ghost town. Wow. These guys have been at this for 50 plus years, right? (laughs) You know? And... And the first, and then yeah. the first to release a song dealing with uh, yeah, and and it's it just, and it's good. It's good. I mean, it's really really good. So are these are these um, guys who, you know, I, I don't know. Do they warm up? They probably. I'm sure they rehearse, but they seem like a band. They just go out there and they just do it. They just you know? do it. They just do it, and and that's the magic of the sound, and yeah. it's and it's flawless. You know, I never. Quite, oh my god, I'm pumped. I never song. quite. Uh, I'm piped. I'm pumped because Mick and Keith, you mm-hmm. know, and and Ronnie and Liberty Charlie, teams, yeah. they're, they're going to have a new record. That's, yeah. I mean, they're working on a new record. Yeah, well, there's new music. There's going to be no That was the most exciting part of this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I just, uh, it would be nice, be cool to drive around on this track and, mm-hmm. yeah, thinking about, uh, you know, we're not alone. Yeah. We're the, all feeling this. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter how big of a star you are or just a regular regular Joe's like us, you know. And We're all in this together, man. Yeah. And, uh, it's so cool. I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. Yeah, it really is. And uh, thanks, guys, for putting it out. And uh, great track. Yeah. Really great track. Amazing track, yeah. So what, uh, in the world of news, Dave, what yeah. else is going on here? Uh, there's some big stuff in the VH. In the VH world, yeah. We're getting ready for, uh, and we'll get to the Greg Redoff interview. This is the perfect way to do it. This is so, so cool. 
So, uh, Ultimate Classic Rock. I just happened to go to the website, and you know they got <laughs> they got this story, unreleased Van Halen songs, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. There's a picture of them with Sammy and. Uh, it's Eddie and Sammy. It's it's um, you know uh, Gary and when so he was is, in the band. There's everything. Is this like there's twenty yeah twenty five unreleased. The story is here. Twenty five unreleased Van Halen songs. A hidden history. Uh, there's more than two albums worth of unreleased Van Halen songs waiting to be heard on YouTube. And I don't know who put this on there and how they found this, but wow. the Van Halen sleuths are they're passionate. You know, yeah. it started with the Van Halen news desk. I think that website. Now it's just any rock fan. I mean, the ultimate classic rock people are great. I don't know if they found this, but they put it all together here. They say, below, we chronologically break down 25 demos and live cuts that never found their way to one of the group's 12 studio albums. Wow. We also include information about an additional 16 tracks that have never been bootlegged. Interesting. And we conclude by rounding up the seven previously unreleased tracks that were reworked to varying degrees on the band's uh, 2012 album, A Different Kind of Truth. So we all knew that there were some reworked demos. Yes. From like way back in the early days, that went on to. Um, That's why I like the album. Right. Yeah. Which is great. So you know it's flaw yeah. You know it's flawless. Um, it's kind of the, it was it was the zero album. I think was kind of like yeah. that collection of demos. So what we have here, and uh, we I wish we could play it on here, but uh, it's on Ultimate Classic Rock. They got it all there, and and all these Van Halen. I'm in like two Van Halen groups on Facebook, and it's like people are just putting this stuff out there. It's crazy. Right. Uh, Gentlemen of Leisure and Glitter. This goes back to 1973. Van Halen recorded their first demos wow. of original material in the fall of 73. I didn't realize it was that early. I, was, uh, I never, I never. I thought it was, I was thinking like 76. You know, um, 73. 73. Yeah, at David Lee Roth's family house. According to the book Van Halen Rising, which Greg Renoff wrote, and he's on the show coming up. <laughs> um, only three quarters of the band's classic lineup was featured in this five-piece group. Of course. Um, Michael Anthony has uh, had yet to replace Mark Stone on bass, and okay. then there's keyboardist Jim Pusey, was still an active member of the band. We gotta find him. We gotta, if he's still around, we gotta yeah. find this guy. In 1998, uh, Roth shared these demos on his website as part of the Dave TV series. <laughs> uh, so glitters another track. 74 brings us Angel Eyes and Believe Me, with uh, Pusey gone and Stone about to be shown the door because of his refusal to sing background vocals. Wow. Well, Oh, yeah. amazing. <laughs> he refuses to sing background vocals. <laughs> and then they get Michael Anthony, who's known for background vocals and, and yeah. thumping bass. Uh, Van Halen were offered an opportunity to record at Hollywood's Cherokee Studios, in addition to early versions of uh, future um, women and children first cuts, uh, Take Your Whiskey Home, and in a simple rhyme, the band recorded two tracks uh, that have never appeared on an album, Angel Eyes featuring Roth on acoustic guitar. You don't really hear him much on acoustic yeah. guitar. Uh, uh, ice Cream Man, right? Except I think that's... That's what a lot of people don't realize that, like, the last time we saw him, he comes out. Yeah, and he plays a good... Yeah. He's amazing. He's great. He really is. And uh, I don't know if you wrote some of the licks on his first first or second with Skyscraper. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite songs. Uh, what's that slow um, number on Skyscraper? Uh, oh, man. Going Home or... Yeah, what is it? Um, gosh. Oh, it's driving me nuts. Oh, geez, Dave. Well, while you look that up, I'll, I'll finish. Uh, so it features Roth and guitar, Angel Eyes. He was reportedly considered, it was considered for inclusion on 79's Van Halen 2. Uh, ultimately, it was decided that the general ballad did not fit alongside the rest of the album's songs. So Women in Love, uh, 1976, which we know about, they dug deep into their last tour. They, they played a lot of the, some of these, these really old songs. Right. Uh, and Babe, Don't Leave Me Alone, 1976. At the height of um, his fame and kiss, Gene Simmons offered to help Van Halen find a record deal. And also changed the band's name to 
Was it Daddy Long Legs? Yeah. Or was it Rat Salad? Ooh. It was one of those two. It was one of the one of the two. I think it was Rat Salad. It was it was I think it was Rat Salad, and then it later ended up the demo was called Daddy Long Legs, but uh, but they refused it. They decided we're going with Van Halen. We're sticking with Van Halen. I, I'll double check. That. I didn't know uh, there was a band. Uh, it's some of the guys from the band Sleep, a big. Uh, big big group right now. Fan, oh yeah, fantastic group. But they have a side band. Some of the guys in Sleep are in a band called. Uh, um, I just I just completely dropped dropped the name. You went to sleep. <laughs> my brain went to sleep. Wake up, brain. Um, oh shit. It, it is like a Van Halen cover <laughs> cover group. Or? No, but they they released a single uh, at, right at the end of 2019. Okay. And. Um, uh, it's called Rat Salad. Oh, okay. Or Bat Salad. And oh, Bat Salad. Like, I, like it was a like a play on. Yeah. But it's an instrumental and it just crunches. Okay. It is so good, but I That's need cool. to tell you the name of the band before we go <laughs> on because it's kind of pointless if I don't. Uh, the, the David Lee Roth song was Damn Good, by the way. Damn Good. Okay. Okay. Um, so, let's see. Let me see here. I'll figure it out. And I'm, uh, want me to continue on with this? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's all right. Just so, uh, <laughs> so Women in Love and uh, Babe, uh, Don't Leave Me Alone. So at the height of his fame and Kiss, Gene Simmons offered to help Van Halen find a record deal, a process that included making a new demo. Uh, four of the songs that, um, I'm going to remove the, the mask here, just in a different way here. <laughs> um, four of the ten songs that have leaked from the eight sessions wound up on the band's First, six studio albums on Fire, Running with the Devil, Somebody Get Me a Doctor, House of Pain, um, She's the Woman, Let's Get Rockin', uh, Big Trouble, Put Out the Lights, all were reworked decades later for inclusion on A Different Kind of Truth. Right. A pair of others, and I think Wolfgang actually went through the, and picked out those songs, uh, Eddie Van Halen said, uh, a pair of others have never uh, seen proper release, including Women in Love, which has no musical relation to Van Halen 2's Okay, so I did not know this. So this is different. So this has no relation to um, Van Halen 2's similarly titled Women in Love. Okay, I didn't know that. Eyes of the Night and Honolulu Baby. Van Halen uh, were prolific in their early days, uh, regularly debuting new songs at their club shows uh, and often abandoning them just as quickly. According to the Van Halen Encyclopedia, the woman who inspired Honolulu Baby was actually from Waikiki, but Roth is it, that's a wacky yeah. yeah. But Roth couldn't think of lyrics that rhymed with that city's name. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, 1977. We die bold, young and wild. I want to be your lover. Peace of mind. Light in the sky. That's different from lighting up the sky. I think. Yeah. Uh, get, light up the sky. Light up the sky. That's it. Yeah. Uh, get the show on the road. Voodoo Queen last night and gonna take a lot of drugs. Uh, <laughs> all from 1977. So. Uh, this is all from Ultimate Classic Rock. They say, unable to find a record deal for Van Halen and reportedly under pressure from his Kiss bandmates to focus on his own group, Simmons bowed out of the picture by tearing up the management contract between the two parties. Not long after, Van Morrison and Doobie Brothers producer Ted Tippelman uh, was tipped off to the band, and, and this was in part one. This was all summed up in part one yeah. of our Greg Renoff story. Um, uh, went to see, Ted went to see them perform, and... Uh, you good? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Ted went to see them uh, perform and uh, instantly set about getting them a deal at Warner Brothers. He cut a 25-song demo with the group that included new versions of every track that had recorded with 
that they recorded with Simmons, Simmons except for Women in Love. Most of the songs eventually found their way onto Van Halen albums, including four tracks reworked for A Different Kind of Truth. But We Die Bold, I Want to Be Your Lover, Peace of Mind, and Light Up the Sky, not to be confused, like you said, with Van Halen 2's Light Up the Sky, uh, remain unreleased. Um, so does the band's uh, version of the Kim Fowley and Stephen Tetch, I guess is how you say it, yeah. penned Young and Wild, um, which was later recorded by Cherry Curry. I think it's Cherry, yeah. Cherry Curry, yeah. Um, it took a couple of minor modifications for Bring on the Girls to become Van Halen 2's Beautiful Girls, so we're not including that one. Um, three other tracks from the Templeman sessions seem to at least uh, partially seem at least partially familiar to fans, but have varying degrees of differences. Get the show on the road features half of Romeo Delight's chorus. Voodoo Queen shares its main riff, um, but not much else with Main Street, uh, and also features the coda eventually used on Hot for Teacher. And uh, last night is nearly is a nearly complete version of Diver Down's Hang 'Em High, uh, but with a different chorus and lyrics. Anthony and Roth also recorded a short. Uh, drudgy parody of Nicolette Sheridan's Lot of Love as an inside joke for Templeman because, of course, um, yeah. Templeman's production with uh, Nicolette. Yeah, Nicolette uh, Larson. Wow. Um, 19th, we're, we're, no, we're not done yet. Uh, so, okay, this page keeps refreshing. I, I wonder if there's so many people on this site. Uh, we, did, we did the We Die Bold. We did all that. Okay, so they have all the links to the songs. Still in 77, no more waiting. Uh, here's just what you wanted, the shape you're in, and one more time. As live bootlegs of these four songs prove, not even a 25-song demo was big enough to include all of the Van, all of the songs in Van Halen's 1977 repertoire. Uh, the guitar intro of No More Waiting resurfaced in 1995 on uh, Take Me Back Deja Vu. This is from Balance. Uh, in 1995, um, the last album was Sammy Hagar. Uh, but otherwise, there's no record of these tracks ever being recorded in a studio. Another song from the band's live shows around this time, Down in Flames, uh, which I thought they played. Did they bring that one back out, Down in Flames? It sounds familiar. It doesn't, um, I don't recall that one, but... Uh, Down in Flames had its opening swiped for their cover of You're No Good. Uh, the song's main riff and basic arrangement was also used... Uh, for the song Tattoo from A Different Kind of Truth. Okay. Oh. I didn't really like Tattoos. The, lyrically, it was kind of silly, but uh, but anyway. Tattoo um, was a single? Yeah, that was the lead single, which I thought, oh no. <laughs> I remember that. It was, it was like, actually the, the worst song on the record. It was horrible. Oh, it was, I mean, there's Honey Baby Sweetie Doll. There's, you know, You and Your Blues, which is my favorite. Yeah. There's so many good songs. Chinatown. Ch yeah. Um, uh, you know, Big River, right? Oh. There's some good ones, man. Uh, Bullethead. Okay, Act Like It Hurts 1980, after using the majority of the songs from its club days on Van Halen and Van Halen 2, 78 and 79 uh, in both of those uh, times, the band was eager to explore more sophisticated and experimental material on 1980's Women and Children First. This unreleased instrumental demo is anchored by a thumping Michael Anthony bass line. All right, so you got that. Uh, okay, 1983, Anytime, Anyplace, and then... Uh, 1985, uh, <laughs> Eat Thy Neighbor. That sounds like an Aerosmith title. Yeah. I like Eat the Rich. Uh, audio has yet to surface on these two tracks. Okay, so, okay, this is interesting. Uh, the Van Halen Encyclopedia lists Anytime, Anyplace uh, as an unreleased song from the 1984 album sessions while Eat Thy Neighbor comes from Van Halen's aborted attempt to record a seventh album with Roth before he left the band. Um, it is also rumored oh. there's a version of 5150's oh, Summer Nights. Stuff. Yeah, what's that? Don't tell me I that know, stuff. I know, I know. 
Well, I would. I, to me, it's like that album especially kicks in with those last two tracks. I mean, it kicks in halfway, but I just like God. I wanted more 1984, and you got to see the new Family Guy. By the way, it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, it deals with um, 1984. <laughs> really? Yeah, I'll play that for nice. you afterwards. Uh, not on air, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, offline. Okay. Um, it's also rumored there's a version of 5150's Summer Nights featuring Roth on vocals in the vaults. Now, that was the first song that Sammy said that he wrote with the band, so maybe Sammy brought in lyrics, but that riff was already there. Right. Uh, an unverified label uh, memo discussing 1984 also lists the songs um, Baritone Slide, Lie to You, and Ripley uh, as being in the can. Uh, 1985, I Want Some Action, not to be confused with the Def Leppard song, I guess, right? right. Um, this song may not have earned a spot on Van Halen's first album with Sammy Hagar, 5150, of course, but Eddie Van Halen did not give up on it so easily. Elements turned up during the guitarist's 1987 performance of the new instrumental track uh, Stompin' 8H uh, on Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live. Uh, two years later, Eddie handed over the song to Steve Lukather, his buddy from Toto, and even played bass on uh, Twist the Knife from Toto from the Toto guitarist's debut solo album. Nearly a decade later, a similar riff turned up on Van Halen 3's Dirty Water Dog. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you never know, 1990 and 91, The Wish and Out of the Ether. Uh, also yeah. from uh, 1991, uh, the first two of these unheard outtakes from 1991's Foreign Love for Carnal Knowledge featured, quote, uh, she blinded me with sight. Uh, so they did a cover? Oh, wait, no. no, no. Featured, no, no. Thomas okay. Dolby. Thomas Dolby, who did that song. Uh, she blinded me with science, assisting on keyboards. That, you know, I, okay, I think I did uh -huh. hear something about that. Um, <laughs> I know, that's wild, right? In return, Eddie Van Halen appeared on two songs from Dolby's 1992 album, Astronauts and Heretics. It was eventually decided that uh, You Never Know and The Wish didn't fit with the back-to-basics approach of the rest of the Van Halen album. They really wanted to go heavier and harder with that record. Out of the Ether was reportedly also considered for including on the band's next album, Balance, um, with the working title of Hendrix Jam. So, we go to 1994, I Remember, Shaker, Backdoor Shuffle, and Numb to the Touch. According to the Van Halen Encyclopedia, uh, four unreleased songs emerged from the sessions for Balance, the band's tumultuous final album with Hagar, 1995. Um, when the group reunited with Roth for two new songs in 1996, Backdoor Shuffle was reworked as Can't Get This Stuff No More, which annoyed Hagar. So I didn't realize Hagar had anything to do with that, that one track. Uh, and then t they, quote, they totally stole the melody in the chorus from my original, he later said. I had no idea. I just made one phone call and Ray Daniels, who was the manager of the band, he also managed Rush and Extreme. Um, Sammy made one phone call to Ray Daniels overnight. Um, and Ray, Ray Daniels overnighted me a check for $35,000 saying he was sorry. These guys don't have any class anymore. Um... 1996, It's the Right Time. Uh, in between Hagar's departure and Roth's brief return to Van Halen, singer Mitch Malloy, there's a cool documentary, Van Halen's Lost Boy. This, right. He was brought in. This was a crazy time for the band. Singer Mitch Malloy was reportedly offered the chance to be Van Halen's third singer. He said he turned it down because, quote, it was clear to me that something was amiss, uh, but not before he recorded at least one leaked song, It's the Right Time. So I never knew they recorded anything. There's a picture of him and Eddie in the studio. Yeah. Uh, right there. Or, or it's in there somewhere. Yeah. But I never knew they recorded anything. That's wild. I didn't either. Yeah. And so we're going back to 1988 now. That's Why I Love You, uh, Blood from a Rock, It's Not Over Till It's Over, and Why Because Why. 
Um, so That's Why I Love You was a last-minute scratch from Van Halen's first and only album with singer Gary Sharon. I do remember that. Um, and even, so they must have meant 1998. They put 88 right. here, I think. Okay. Um, even appearing on uh, early test pressing, uh, pressing versions of the record, according to the Van Halen Encyclopedia, the group also attempted to record the song during its brief reunion with Roth in 1996. The book also lists three other tracks uh, recorded during the Van Halen three sessions that have never leaked. Blood from a Rock, It's Not Over Till It's Over, and Why Because Why. So in 1999 now, Left 4 Dead, Say Uncle, You Wear It Well, and River Wide. In May, on May 19, 1999, Van Halen's website reported that the band had written more than 20 new songs for the follow-up to Van Halen 3. And Gary Sharon actually talked to Eddie Trunk about this. Um, seven tracks were reportedly recorded as demos. Four titles were included in the story, but none has ever been bootlegged in any uh, in any form. Another report on the sessions offered four more unconfirmed song titles, more than yesterday, I Don't Miss You, dot, 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 much, Love Divine, and From Here, Where Do We Go? Um, so then they go to A Different Kind of Truth, which is, uh, well, technically came out in 2012. She's the Woman originally goes back to 76, Big Trouble 76, Big Trouble became Big River, uh, Ripley in 1983 became uh, Blood and Fire 2011. Down in Flames 1977 becomes Tattoo. Let's Get Rockin' 76 becomes Out of Space 2011. Put Out the Lights 1977 becomes Beats Workin' 2011. And then Bullethead goes from 77 to was wow. repurposed in 2011. Uh, Van Halen, again, this is all from a, uh, Ultimate Classic Rock. Uh, Van Halen reuni reunited with Roth for their first new studio album together in almost three decades, really since 1984, rating their vaults for 2012 is a different kind of truth. Six previously unreleased songs from the Simmons and Templeman demos were dusted off for the project. The 1983 instrumental Ripley was reborn as Blood and Fire, with Roth adding new lyrics about the band's history and early struggles. The singer also rewrote almost all the lyrics on the seven repurposed tracks, uh, resulting in five of them getting new titles. Eddie Van Halen's son Wolfgang took over for Anthony on bass, uh, and it's his enthusiasm that wa that's widely credited with pulling the band out of uh, semi-retirement. Um, he also came up with a new breakdown for She's the Woman since the original one was used on Fair Warning's Mean Street. Some songs, such as Bullethead, emerged from the rewrites mostly unchanged. Uh, others underwent more significant modifications, most notably Down in Flames, which uh, became Tattoo. Uh, and that's it. It's a lot Dude, of stuff. That's, that's wild, isn't it? <laughs> so what, how many is it again in total? So we're talking uh, Ultimate Classic like Rock 25? says. Yeah, 25 unreleased Van Halen songs. Um, it looks like 16, tr uh, and then, okay, yeah. 25 demos. Let's get in the studio, guys. I know. Let's do something, you know? Come on. And, uh, you know, for more on Van Halen, and uh, Ted Templeman mentioned here, the book is Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music. Dr. Greg Renoff talking about uh, working on those background vocals with Michael Anthony. Ow! Ted, you know, I think as a musician, was really, really well prepared to do Van Halen. And I don't mean that because uh, because Harper's Bazaar did music any like Van Halen at all. I mean, it really didn't. Mm -hmm. Ted's Harper's Bazaar was very, was called, um, the group would have been uh, termed Sunshine Pop, which is like the association, the fifth dimension. You know, it, it was very sort of like light, airy um, pop songs. And that's what they mostly, that's what 
Harvard Star mostly did, but they did a lot of very intricate harmonies and did a lot of um, pretty complicated vocal arrangements. And so, you know, Ted was well prepared, along with, of course, the stuff he did with the Dewey Brothers as well, a lot of the harmonies. And their their, their um, albums are going to be uh, Pat Simmons and Tom Johnson. They did the two-part harmonies and a lot of songs. So Ted was really, really well prepared to maximize a voice like Michael Anthony's and really to say, okay, you and Ed singing together is going to sound really, really good on a lot of these songs that we're going to, when JV's crying, feel your love tonight, all of these, these songs, we can really play up the, those types of uh, vocals. But the other thing too is interesting is that Ted sang on a lot of the Van Halen material. So especially the earlier stuff. So Van Halen one, Van Halen two, some of the stuff on Diver Down, I think for sure. Ted sang background vocals with those guys. He would go in and actually double Ed Van Halen's vocal part because Mike's voice was so strong to make mm. the voices sound, make the, you know, whatever vocal, again, I'm not musical enough to explain the part, but whatever the part of the harmony that Ed sang, Ted would sing it with him to basically, to thicken up that, that note of the, of the harmony, that part of the, the harmony there is to match up with Mike because Mike's voice was so strong. You know, he had to, <laughs> yeah. he had two guys to sing alongside one to make it sound, sound right. Awesome. So, um, you know, Ted was really, yeah, Ted was really, you know, Ted, I could tell you a lot of, I mean, kind of jumping to a quick, a quick different little anecdote here is that, um, you know, there's a band Ted produced called the Bullet Boys, which had an album yep. that came out in 1988, um, went gold, was a big MTV hit. They were, you know, they were kind of a, a um, you know, a glam, glam metal band. And uh, Ted's the guy who wrote the drum part for, for, for the love of money. And so Jimmy DeAnda, their drummer, Ted had forgotten that, but he told me that. Said, yeah, actually, Ted was the guy. We were working in the arrangement. Oh, wow. Ted sat down on my drum kit and was like, <laughs> like he wrote that that drum part. You know, Ted was wow. extremely okay. creative and musical um, and working with these groups. And so he would, you know, he would do that all the time, um, you know, kind of add his two cents and work, you know, as a producer should work and, you know, not take a songwriting credit. You know, it wasn't about like going, I wrote that, I want credit. Ted never took the songwriting credit in that way, mm-hmm. but it was more about, you know, he was able to hop on these different instruments and kind of piano or organ. He played organ on uh, on uh, Rock Candy. If you listen to the, the middle of Rock Candy or in the solo section, listen to the headphones, you can hear there's a Hammond organ. That's Ted Templeton playing the Hammond organ on that album uh, underneath underneath Ronnie Montrose's guitar. So he was, yeah, he was wow. a really, um, you know, he was able to basically get in with these guys in these bands and work with them on a musical level rather than just sort of going, you know, turn up the bass or we need, less, right. you know, whatever. He had this real musicality about him. He does. Yeah. I, you know, I thought about that, like producers that play, you know, who are musicians too and how it's, it's a different, I don't want to say class, but it's a different style or maybe it, it, yeah. bands can warm up, you know, more to them. There's a connection there versus, you know, you're an audio guy, you know, it sounds good. Tell the drummer to do this, tell the bass player to do that. It's a whole different dynamic, I think. Yeah. And I, I you know, I'm not, um, I feel like I'm moderately qualified to talk a little bit about yeah. that. I mean, only because right yeah. book, but I know I'm being, I'm being actually being, not being totally sarcastic. I'm being serious because, but it's because, you know, um, Ted would talk to me about like, he said, like Jerry Whistler, incredible producer, not musician. And Ted was like, you know, was focused on that just to say, you don't have to be a musician to be a great producer. You know, Lenny Warnker, who was Ted's mentor at Warner Brothers and one of his very good friends, um, was a, is not a musician and is a great producer. So it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, there, there's different, I said I'm not really qualified because I don't really know a ton about right. the guys who didn't only know from basically from Ted talking about his experiences. But there are guys right. who, are, who just have different, have great ears, but can't tell you how to play, you know, a, a G minor chord on a guitar or something like that. You know, it's just a different, yeah. a different type of thing. Um, 
but yes, that was, you know, sort of a more of a, you know, kind of get in with them and play along and if you had to play a part or, and, uh, be able to think about the in some more musical fashion. We should cut this short change. It just like would imagine it's a different sort of way of approaching the art production if you're not a musician. Yeah, I, I was. I wanted to go back. Speaking of that musician part, to go back to that that human voice and you know, kind of doubling Ed's vocals because I, I I did not know that until kind of coming across your book. I didn't know that was him, Ted Templeman. Because uh, I was wondering, you know, over the years I try to I watch Eddie and I watch him sing, and it's hard to sort of figure out his voice because, like you said, Michael's so strong, and I feel like I always thought was is is he more? And it's hard to tell, I guess, with the live mix. I'm not really great with audio how that works, but. You know what I mean? Like some singers, you can kind of like Joe Perry has a distinct voice, I think, for backgrounds. Right. You know, you listen to some right. other stuff. But um, I mean, I was amazed that kind of answers a lot because I didn't realize um, that there was some some additional vocals going on on Eddie's side of things. Not that Eddie's not great, but just it, it, it it's kind of mind blowing. I had no idea. You know, I mean, he didn't do, he didn't do it on, on every song. I mean, I think right. for example, um, you know, Ted doesn't remember off the top of his head, which ones. It would just be a matter of him going out into the room with those guys when they were doing the background vocals and just joining in. So there wasn't a – there's not a record on the track to say, oh, Ted Templeman, you know, on a single track on a, a tape box or something like that. But, um, you know, Dance the Night Away, right, where they really want those big harmonies. Ted would jump in there and kind of help thicken it up um, and do that type of type of uh, stuff. But, you know, I think the other thing about it, which was – which Ted really emphasized to me, you know, he did that type of stuff because he felt it was – beneficial to helping it build camaraderie like you know up and above you like i'm not against going in there and like playing tambourine on a record not because i want to play tambourine just to be like i play tambourine on the record he didn't care about that but it was just more like we're working on something together to get it done we're trying to fill in all these different you know tasks that we need to do we need to get these parts done let's get this done so we can move on to the next thing just to sort of you know to, to basically go i'm in the trenches with you guys I'm, I'm here i'm trying to finish this thing too i'm not just going well, it's your problem. You can't play that right or whatever, you know, or, you know, yeah. kind of as a way of um, separating himself. So for him, you know, he really talked a lot about that and his affection for the people he worked with. And that doesn't mean he, you know, got along with every guy he ever produced or anything like that. There's certainly some conflict in the book between um, him and some other people he worked with. But for him, you know, he loves Michael McDonald. He loves Eddie Van Halen. He loves, even, you know, even people he had, again, differences with, David Lee Roth, wherever it is. You know, he has enormous respect for them, for the work they, you know, for the work they did. And for him, it was incredible to be able to work with these these talented people. And wanted he wanted to, you know, make these records sound great. And he was like, I'm going to get in there and, and do whatever I have to do to, to do it. Uh, and that goes on down to um, playing drums on uh, What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers when they yeah. were trying to get the uh, the beat right on that. And, and Ted couldn't explain to um, the late Keith Knudsen, who was the drummer of the Doobie Brothers, Ted just couldn't quite articulate. Um, and to John, the other drummer of the Doobie Brothers, what he wanted, actually Ted hopped on John's drum kit and played it as sort of a last gasp going, okay, we just got, let me see if I can just do this to help kind of like lead the way through here. And actually that was the, the uh, that drum take is the one that's on the album. Uh, so, you know, that's he was, amazing. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's, yeah. he was, yeah, he was, um, I could go on and on about that stuff. I mean, actually, you know, the other one that's a great example is, uh, listen to the background, listen to the, the fade out on uh, a lot of love by Nicolette Larson. If you listen in headphones or you listen to the electric closely, you'll hear this a male voice. That's Ted. That's Ted singing okay. the male kind of the counterpoint voice to hers. And he's mixed a little bit louder than he normally is. Like usually Ted didn't want his voice to be distinguishable. He would have wanted to begin with the Ed Van Halen. He just wanted to mix in to blend in. 
just to fill in the cracks. He didn't want people to be like, who's that other guy singing? You know, he didn't oh, want right. that. He just wanted it to be sort of, okay, what do we need to sort of finish this off, get it done, you know, kind of maybe add a little bit of, um, as he would say, like, you know, mortar between the bricks or something just to get it get it all smoothed out. I'll, I'll do that. But if you listen to a lot of love, you can kind of hear it's a little bit more distinct, and that's Ted singing that, yeah. That's a, that's amazing. I, you know, speaking of singing, and you touched a little bit on uh, David Lee Roth, and I, I guess some disagreements that, that Ted had with uh, Dave at times, a couple things. What did he um, talk about just what Ted thought of David Lee Roth early on? I mean, Roth is such a unique guy. He likes dance music. He likes all these different he's, – he's so unique, and he's, he's like a one of a kind. And just tell me about, like, um, your thoughts on Ted's early impressions of David Lee Roth and working with him over those years. So, yeah, so that was one of the things that in the book that Ted really wanted to try to phrase properly. And I think he, I, I think, you know, he is, he is very aware of the fact that he doesn't want Dave to think that he never, you know, that he doesn't think Dave is an enormous talent. For him, when he first heard Dave sing in the studio, Dave didn't perform up to the standard Ted had hoped, probably because no one had really ever tried to talk me and be focused Dave in on as Ted would probably tell you like what Dave did well and what he didn't do well. For example, Ted talked to me a lot about, you know, we would listen to some of the stuff from the Van Halen's first demo when, when Ted was actually like, Oh man, this is, this could be problematic because the guy's not, I'm not sure he can pull it off. He said, you know, said when I really started listening back to it, he's like, you know, I realized he had written vocal melodies that he couldn't pull off. Like basically Mm -hmm. things that like he, he probably, you know, maybe he thought he was he was hitting the notes, but he wasn't quite getting. And so for Ted, you know, for him, it all kind of went, came and made a 180 for Ted once he really got to know Dave on a more personal level. And I say that because they, he signed the band, and then soon after that, they went in the studio and did the demo. So it wasn't like Ted had an enormous amount of time to talk to Dave or, like, hang out with Dave or do these types of things. But once Ted sort of said, okay, I'm going to work to make this a go of this and was kind of mulling over the, the issue of how to how – to, basically get Dave right for the studio, you know, Ted said, you know, talking to this guy, I mean, this guy is brilliant. He's got these amazing lyrics. He has this great sense of humor. He had this great work ethic where he wanted to work hard. You know, basically he was coachable, basically. He was not um, somebody who wasn't willing to kind of, to say, you know, if you told him, Hey, you got to do this differently. You know, Dave would do, would do it. Basically Dave was, Dave wanted to be great. and was willing to be coached. And I think Ted saw the, all those, all the wider characteristics about Dave. And so I think that was one of the things that Ted really wanted to convey in the book is that, you know, even if first off he was like, I'm not sure this is going to work because I'm not sure this guy can sing well enough to pull this off, you know, over a period of weeks after that. And then of course, over the long run, I mean, you'd be the first one to say that Dave was the guy to him who, if Van Halen didn't have Roth, they wouldn't have made it. And that's mm-hmm. again, not a knock on the other guys, but he, you know, I think Ted is like a lot of us just understands how important Dave was to selling the band, the vibe yeah. of the, the of the the stage show, and then just those performances on record. I mean, you know, Ted would say, "Look, those screams were those were one of the things that I heard that I said, wow, this is really unusual. I've never really heard anyone do those screams like that.' That was, you know, what Ted was looking for too as a producer is identifiability, which is you know, something that when you listen to the radio, you go, "Oh, that's Axel Axel Rose." Oh, that's Mick Jagger. Oh, you know, you go through a whole bunch of other people who are just sort of, you know, maybe not the next natural vocalists that you would pop Dylan, but they're distinctive. And so he was like, yeah, Roth has got some things that he does that are sort of his signature um, things. And so all those things kind of rolling together got to um, at some point where Ted was, you know, fully committed to Dave going forward. And then just, yeah, it would, would be the 
first person to point to to say if they didn't have Roth running that band, it wouldn't have happened. That's that's Ted's belief. Again, and he doesn't mean that to say like that Eddie and Alice wouldn't have had a career as musicians. He means like that Van Halen, in his opinion, as constituted, never would have been as big without Dave. Mm. Yeah, I, I came across it kind of reminds me of an interview I came across, and I apologize, I don't have the source in front of me. It's an older one where uh, somebody talked to Alex, and Alex said that in the very early days, some of the guys that would book the band at the bar thought that Van Halen, like David Lee Roth's name was Van Halen, like, and like Van Moore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Van Moore, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they didn't know his name was Dave, and I, I just thought that was hilarious. And, and it really speaks to your point, and I think Ted's point about that, too, about, you know, just that dominant personality and creative force. Yeah, there's no question about it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Ted, you know, Ted was the, one of the, actually the person, I mean, I, I mean, I, obviously he's more qualified than Ted Templeman, who really, you know, I always liked Dave's lyrics, but really got me more locked in on the fact, because this is Ted, Ted's belief, is like, Dave's an amazing vocalist, um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, but really his lyrics, for example, ain't talking about love, you know, he would talk, he'd talk about these lyrics to these different songs and how great they were, like Panama, he's, you know, things that maybe the average person, the Halen fan, isn't walking around going, Panama's amazing lyrics. But to, to Ted, he's like, you know, I didn't, you know, you know, I didn't know if he's thinking about a car or a girl or whatever. He said, hey, he's just had these very yeah. um, poetic ways of, of doing things. And he's, you know, I think, I think Ted would probably, you know, just his whole persona, you know, the sort of the, the rock star persona that kind of got overlooked by a lot of people because no one took him, quote, unquote, seriously as a, as a writer. Um, you know, in the way that other people would be taken seriously as an artist with the big A, but he's, you know, he would, he would say that those, those, um, lyrics that he would come up with, he'd be like, wow, this just is incredible, you know, this, this, these different, um, things, and especially how fast he worked. He would talk to me quite a bit about how, you know, if I didn't like a, a lyrical idea, I might be able to go, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know about this, Davis, you know, think of something else and he'd come back soon after with something. He'd be like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, like Dave was like, he said, I'm flawed with incredible, like, you could just be like, yeah, come up with something. He was just so creative. And so, um, you know, Ted was very locked in on that that um, aspect of Dave, too, was writing Jump, you know, for example, mm-hmm. again. To, to Ted, he said, you know, that was just such a brilliant lyric because it was something everyone could – once he kind of Ted explained to Ted that it was about taking a chance, and he said, oh, I realized that everybody, you know, could could relate to that that idea and then understanding it's it's you know the, the lyric itself is jump which just sounds like oh yeah I'm jumping off the ground but it's not it's not that it's about that leap of faith you know hey we're gonna take a shot at this and he said you know that's the stuff that something that could be basically something that could be sung in a stadium and kids could sing along but something that has a more profound meaning we walk we're going oh what's going on here about um, and you know that was where he would really point intelligence and creativity to be such a central thing to Van Halen's success. Oh yeah, no, you're right about that. Yeah, because I, I going back to Panama, I, I was thinking that too. There was, I, I thought, is it is this a car I never heard of, or is this like driving? Can you really? Is there like a you know? It seems like a, dri- a cruising song. Is there like a straightaway somewhere in Panama right. that you know? Yeah. Right. Um, right. I, exactly. Like what's pa- like what is Panama? Right. It's the country. Is right. Like, what is it? A girl? Is it a car? I mean, that's what Ted was kind of Ted's point was. It was all of these like you have to like step back and actually try to think about where he was going. But yeah, he you know yeah. He said to me many times, Dave's a genius. I mean, he said he's. He, there's a great line in the book where he said, you know, there are a lot of guys back, especially in the early 70s, where he would talk about like the Frank Zappa crew who would kind of come and talk to you and they'd act all weird and say all this kind of like esoteric stuff. And you're supposed to be like, whoa, you know, that's so good to make it out there. And he's like, you know what? But, you know, Dave was, Dave was naturally like that. He's like, Dave was actually 
wasn't trying to fake it. Like he was actually brilliant. Like he would talk to you about a comic book and then he'd be talking about some like, you know, Shakespearean sonnet like two minutes later. Like it all like, it all kind of tied together in Dave's mind. You're like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense when I think about it. He said he was just, he wasn't just an unusual, you know, unusually brilliant person. Yeah. Um, I, I was curious too about, I, I, you know, Ted certainly witnessed the tension, things like that going on in the band. What was your reaction to just some of the things he said about, um, you know, some of the tension that happened? Any and any stories that you'd like to share, you know, that that you know Ted talked about in terms of uh, friction in, in the band? Yeah, I mean, I think it was interesting to get that, of course, to get the kind of the curtain pulled back there is, uh, from his perspective. You know, I think from his point of view the most difficult chapter in his relationship with Van Halen which I think everybody knows is 1984 with yeah. making that record and I think you know to Ted it was a difficult situation because there had been relative harmony in terms of his relationship with with um, Ed and the other guys in the band through the first five albums we always had a good time we made the albums quickly you know things got very elongated for the 1984 album for a number of reasons. Um, but, you know, for Ted, I, I think from his perspective, the thing that made him crazy in making that record was that the deadlines kept getting overrun. And mm-hmm. as you could imagine, for Ted, um, Ted's an executive in the company. Ted's not just some outside producer who's been hired to kind of do this record with this band that signed to Warner Brothers. Ted was the vice president at Warner Brothers. And so Ted was always privy to the entire corporate picture of what was being expected. There was a lot of lot riding on the Van Halen record. Uh, Warner Brothers was counting on it to be come out in 1983, and it eventually ended up come out in 1984, kind of got delayed by a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, for Ted, especially in the way that he he sort of felt that he didn't have control over the, pro- the project, and I don't mean, like, necessarily creative control. I don't think that's what he means, that he means more that he couldn't um, be accountable himself because and studio, he would go up there sometimes to visit to be, or to work or to visit with Ed and Don who were up there at 5150 all the time and, you know, they he, he couldn't get in the studio. He and Dave actually, um, Ted talked to me about that, how they would like be like in theory, just not in theory, in actuality, just locked out um, of 5150. Mm. You know, are they in there? Are they not in there? We think they're in there. The door's locked. You know, go up to the house, ask Valerie. I think they're, they're in there. They should be in there, you know, and those guys didn't come out and stuff like that. So there was a lot of for him, wow. you know, um, stuff that, you know, I think now is all water under the bridge. I mean, Ted and as far as I know, Ted and Don and Ed are all fine. They they, they um, talk on occasion by text or whatever. I think it's all water under the bridge. But at the time, you know, um, this is a huge album from Warner Brothers' premier band and a lot's riding on it. And I think for Ted, you know, he just felt like he didn't – he wasn't able to be answerable to – himself and to the other people in the company about what was going on with the record. And, you know, I could go on and on. It's all in the book. Um, but, you know, for him, it was a, it, it was, it was such that I, I, we talk about at the end of the chapter on the making of 1984, Ted said to me, you know, when I hear the song jump, it gives me a weird feeling. It's hard for me to listen to it. And that doesn't mean, and he, I hope we articulated this right in the book that he doesn't like the song. He does like the song. You know, he didn't necessarily like it for Van Halen, but for him, he remembers how just how crazy the making of the record was and how uh, hard it was to make for a number of reasons. And so for him, it's sort of like, you know, it like kind of reminds you of like a bad feeling, you know, like, like a stressful right. time. So for him, it's like, you know, he's like, he can listen to it and go, 
you know, that's an anthem. That's an amazing thing that Ed put together and give Ed all the credit in the world for seeing his vision through for Trump to the very end, kind of, you know, convincing Ted and convincing Dave that they should do the song and the whole nine yards. But for him, it sort of brings back those like, oh, you know, it was like a extremely difficult and stressful moment in my, you know, period of weeks oh. of my life. So it's hard for him to, to kind of like relax. It's weird. He's like, yeah, I actually played it for him. He's like, yeah, it just kind of gives me this like, like I immediately get like this edge to me, like, oh. <laughs> You know, oh so, yeah. so, you know, just like it was just, uh, you know, it was, you know, I think um, it was just a a a culmination of a lot of tensions within the band between Dave and Ed, between between Ed and Ted, because, to be honest, Ed's creative vision, right, was 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 breaking out from probably what it had been before in terms of his focused largely on guitar. He was doing more keyboards. Right. He had yep. more of a, a more of a, a sense of how I want, hence how I want the whole thing to sound, not just my guitar. Just to, you know, he had more of a, he was coming into his own as a, as a producer of himself. And so all those things sort of came together um, to sort of make that a very difficult um, album making experience. Wow. What a, what a cool interview. I mean, awesome, a, right? just, yeah, just a fascinating guy. I, I just, yeah. uh, would have loved to have been in the room when he sat down with Ted and yeah yeah and he said it was the first book um, Van Halen Rising that he did where uh, Ted kind of caught wind of that and said man this is good and and uh, next thing you know he's telling Ted's story how cool right yeah I, I just I, I'm really looking forward to see whatever he comes up with next yeah would it be another Van Halen book I'd love that not sure but I mean there's so much you can do there's so much you can write about just yeah. with Van Halen alone you know he's one of the new yeah. uh the new league of premier yeah. writers. Yep, that's right. Dr. Greg Renoff, really appreciate uh, him taking the time. And uh, there's more, uh, he'll talk more about sort of uh, what happened after Roth left uh, and how Ted Templeman reacted to all of that. As a war you gotta remember, um, and people forget this, I forget this, Ted Templeman is a Warner Brothers executive. He was there uh, until 1998, so right. even though uh, you know, he was producing and, and stopped with Van Halen producing at, at that point. I, I want to say, you know, by 1984, well, until a little bit later, he, he comes back. Um, he was still an executive at Warner Brothers, so he's watching what's happening with, you know, Warner Brothers, one of their most sacred groups, you know, right. uh, which is Van Halen. They've had such a long relationship. So it'll be really interesting to hear that in part three. Uh, very cool stuff. So that'll be next week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rock and roll. Who sold more records, Doobie Brothers or Van Halen? That's a good question. Uh, you said, <laughs> who sold more? Yeah. Because um, the Doobie Brothers were huge, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Massive. Let me see. I, I wonder. Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, Doobie Brothers. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Doobie Brothers record sales. Uh, uh, they've sold 48 million records. Wow. They've sold more than 48 million including three multi-platinum albums, seven platinum albums, and 14 gold albums. Now, Van Halen, how many Van Halen albums? They probably sold 48 million since 1984. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 56 million albums. So Van Halen by... Yeah, by... Million. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> that, that's, that shows you how big yeah. some of these bands were that he right. produced. I mean... That's all we talked about. Yeah. The was Van Halen. Yeah, exactly. And, now, you know, through the years. But, yeah, yeah. And, but I wonder, when do they stop counting records? Because I don't know what those figures, when they were dated, but 
People like that first album. How many times have people bought that over again? Like I, I probably yeah. bought it three times. No, they just count yeah, when it's bought. So, so they just yeah. count the first. Okay. Yeah. Then you, if you have to replace your cassette, well, yeah, that that unfortunately gets counted. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I don't know. It's amazing. Still, <laughs> it's still money in the bank. Yes, baby. sir. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. And we're talking about records and 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 buying records and and you know. If you own a record store, if you're in the business, um, you know, you're really struggling right now. Uh, Jason Schaefer Valerius, uh, Jay Sonica, um, you know, we call him our record uh, record hey, industry correspondent. He missed he knows you. so much he about He missed it. you. This, yeah? He did, yeah. Oh, he, I missed him. He's great. He He's said awesome. uh, it was just a fantastic, you uh, can't wait to talk to us again. Oh, yeah. Uh, I can't wait. Yeah, he's great. You were on the toilet, and I had to get it done, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, but we had a great chat, and, and Jason really wanted to... Uh, you know, just let us know how things are going. Uh, so there's been some new developments, and uh, check it out. Yep. Every week, there seems to be more and more um, record store or record industry news that keeps coming, you know, fast and furious. Uh, with you know, every week there's more news. This is happening. That's happening. Uh, a kind of big development at the end of last week since we last talked to you. Um, basically based around our you know america's largest independent uh, record store amiibo records in california um isn't doing very well um the recession is uh destroying them basically and they're they basically started up a gofundme page on the 20 26th of april and uh they uh announced to their supporters that they need help what you mean they didn't get their uh small business loan or I don't know even if they fit in. I, I don't know. I don't know if they got anything, but they uh, they basically uh, announced that they're... I can read you the statement here I, instead of beating around the bush. I mean, you would think... I mean, I'm a one-man operation at the moment, so you would think that they would at least have a lawyer or somebody to handle that for them. Or, um, I mean, I don't know. It's yeah. hard to say. I talked to someone last week who said he's making more on unemployment now than he was when he was working, so... You <laughs> Well, that makes sense. Yeah. No, but it's it basically, uh, here, I'll, I'll read you the article, Jason. And I, right. it basically says um, they created a GoFundMe page as a way to offset costs associated with uh, the COVID-19 shutdown. Like most businesses, the record store, which opened its massive Hollywood location in 2001 and has two locations in San Francisco, is still paying rent, bills, and health insurance for some of its 400 employees. So they set a goal of $400,000 on GoFundMe, and uh, in, quote, wow. they, in quote, they said, we have weathered many storms, 9-11, the recessions, the internet, downloading and streaming, but we don't know that we can weather the COVID-19 storm. Uh, their stores have been closed since mid-March, and founders Mark Weinstein and Dave Prince continued in the note with no... And they say, and with no way to generate income, our savings are quickly running out. And that's uh, courtesy of the Los Angeles Times. But um, I mean, uh, what, what... I mean, I feel terrible for them. That's I am right in the same boat in a lot of ways. Um, I wonder what kind of infrastructure they had already set up regarding their online sales, because. I sort of was forced into uh, all of a sudden jumping on Discogs and doing sorts of direct-to-customer sales through the internet that I never had done before, and I didn't really 
relish the idea of it and I don't really enjoy doing that so much. I mean, I, I appreciate that people are interested and, uh, I mean, I really appreciate the business right now, but right. it's kind of, um, impersonal in a lot of ways when I really, I sort of thrive on the face to face and in person. And that's obviously not a, a sustainable business model at the moment, but it does make me sort of wonder, like, did they not have an online business that I may probably couldn't support the entire thing, but right. Well, uh, 400 employees is... So didn't they recently move locations and uh, yeah. the rent was too high in L.A.? I think they're, they're building. I mean, I think that's still underway. So I don't know what, what's going to happen out of all this. It's it's very up in the air. Um, I was pretty sure that they were either... They started building or they were on their way to building like right around this time anyway. So I'll have to look into that as well. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's just... Like what, when you're sitting at home or you're sitting at work and you're not seeing anybody day after day when you're used to seeing people basically seven days a week, I mean, that's got to kill you. Um, yeah, I mean, the crickets, you know, <laughs> it, it, it sort of, um, every day it gets worse and, uh, you know, you, Mondays are particularly bad. I think you wake up and the news cycle from the weekend is all of a sudden spinning again and it's a lot of doom and gloom. And uh, so I don't know. It's like I almost am thinking like, do I need to shut that out? But then at the same time, I'm like, I really need to stay informed and I feel like I'm not really getting my information that I need from uh, the higher ups. I finally did. Um, finally did manage to log on to the IRS last night and they wanted my information so who knows maybe I'll get a stimulus check at some point I know a lot of people have and there's way more that have not yeah um, that was my and, next question was are you uh, concerned that it's not going to come in time are you concerned that it's not going to be enough are you you know what I mean they there's no way it's going to be enough. And that's yeah. unfortunate because why am I even looking forward to something that's basically a drop in the bucket? And then there's, you know, there've been some other people out there who've offered like to help and whatever. And that's, that's actually more kind and generous than waiting on, you know, a pie in the sky. Is this ever going to really happen? What are your plans for record store day? You, you, you talked about it. Well, uh, last night, I, I mean, what, what do you think you want to try to do to address you, you being safe and not putting yourself in danger, but you also want to well, enjoy the fruits of the, of the biggest, one of the biggest days of the year for, for your store? Yeah. So, I, you know, first of all, I think as far as like just opening again, um, obviously everyone's going to have to be masked and gloved or hand sanitized and I still got to work on getting a sneeze guard of some sort because yeah. I'm a sitting duck here. I worry about the summer being hot and like all these reports of air conditioning circulating virus. And I'm like, well, am I going to be having to limit people's time to like 15 minutes? And like, I don't want to be a sitting duck in here, but I also don't want to be leaving the door open and sweltering in 95 degree heat. You know, right. I mean, maybe it kills the virus, but it might make everybody so uncomfortable they don't want to stay i mean maybe that's the intention um so there's a lot of issues there do i make people wait outside the door until uh there's 
someone leaves so they can come in? Do I take their temperature when they're walking in? I mean, there's it just gets a little bit. You can go overboard with it. But well, I think day, I, I think uh, the temperature thing isn't a bad idea. I we we talked and I, I thought like maybe one at a time, um, so that way they you can distance yourself from them because your store is relatively you know on the, on the smaller side and you don't want 10 people in there at once and they're all looking at the same two bins which is what's going to happen so, yeah so it's well, like i, I don't is, you give each person 10 minutes or five minutes and if yeah you have, i mean this is the thing with record store day is uh so much of it is about inviting them into like your living room basically yep. it's not your home and I don't know if I really want more than two or three people in here besides me and maybe my one or two helpers at any given time. I think the the big thing with all this is, is just the uncertainty. And, I mean, you shouldn't be having this much stress over your favorite day of the year. I mean, I know. when, I, know when I've come by, and I, I, yeah, when I come by, I don't usually stand in, in the line because I just don't do that anymore. But, um, right. But I, when I'm there, um, I'm there for easily an hour, an hour and a half. So, Yeah, but see, a lot of people like to stand in the line because they like the talking to the people around them yeah. to say, like, oh, what are you into? What are you here for? And they kind of sort of strike up like a, a sort of strange kind of like friendship in a way where yeah. they see each other like every six months when we ha have these things. So yeah. um, there is a very huge social aspect to it from that position otherwise it's sort of just like well i may as well just place my takeout order you know right. it's kind of uh, a little more impersonal but it might have to be that way at yeah. least for the next you know year or so until this settles down so it's just gonna be gimme 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 and that's it pretty much and yeah but well, you, you, know, you knew that the first five organized yeah. i don't know <laughs> <laughs> You knew that the first five people in your line every every year are always the Dave Matthews and Fish fans. Anyway, so <laughs> I don't think either one of them have records though this time. And that's so. what that's what really makes this really sad is <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um you don't have any rock fans listening to this but like Fish or Dave Matthews? <laughs> You're gonna get letters. Yeah, I just I, I feel uh, I feel horrible for you guys. I I'm racking my brain trying to think of like how could they do this? How could they do that? How could they fix this? How could they fix that? I mean, and I'm I don't even have a record store, but it just goes back to you know. The, the, I mean, the other idea is to just like move it to a huge outdoor park and have people distance themselves every ten feet or whatever. <laughs> I could definitely see myself going into a store, your store and picking around with a pair of gloves on and finding some stuff that I want and, and coming to the counter without getting you sick. You yeah. know. But, again, I'm not everybody, and you're going to have people in there that want to come in without masks. You're going to have people who are going to come in there without gloves. You're going to have people that just want to come in and 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 walk around and... and well, and that's something I think people need to really get through their heads is that... If you walk around without a mask, you think, well, I'm just, I'm taking my chances, and if I get it, it's no big deal, and it's like, yeah, well, you could already be infected, and you could be then passing it on to other people 
who really don't want your illness. Right. So, you know, please keep the health of other people in mind. I mean, that's, you know, you, you hear about these people getting dirty looks and stuff like that, and that's why. Yeah, well, you see it. You see the posts on social media. There was some on my page last night. It was people that were saying it's no worse than the flu. This is insignificant. I don't understand why we're doing this. Yeah. But but the fact of the matter is that that we wear masks not for ourselves as much as we were wearing them for other people. And that's what some people just can't get into their heads is that. And, hey, that might be their experience, but maybe, you know, until you've been through that experience, you really don't even know what you're dealing with. Right. Because you don't know how your body's going to deal with it. And, you know, that's that's the frustrating part of the whole thing. But so what? I feel for anybody working in a hospital right now. I mean, I, I just had a customer I mailed something to in Jersey last week who said that his uh, boss had a 59-year-old employee that had had an appendicitis and went into the hospital to get his appendix out and that went fine but he caught covid while he was in there and didn't make it out of the hospital so you know let's you just you just don't know you got to be careful and you do everything you can certain things are going to be out of your control but um i was i had to go get blood work like three weeks ago and i was shaking in my boots i mean i was I was more intimidated about going into the hospital than I, than I was <laughs> about yeah. anything else. But that's the big problem right now is that there's a lot of people, uh, and that's been the argument for the other, other way on this, is that there's a lot of people that aren't going to the doctor for anything right now because they know, A, they're not going to get seen, and B, they don't want to get sick. So there's people sitting at home with, with heart issues. There's people sitting at home with cancer issues. There's people sitting at home with lung issues and all other kinds of things and they're not getting treatment they're just i don't even want to take my cat to the vet yeah (laughs) what's your take on the largest independent retailer of records in the u.s uh announcing that they might not make it um i think it's indicative of a lot of things to come a lot of stories that we're gonna hear i mean you know, for the longest time, Tower Records was seen as a very large sort of independent sure. corporation. Um, and it's kind of having similar tones uh, to your to your relaying of that news. I just think like, you know, it's like a case of maybe the bigger you are, the harder you, you fall. And yeah. it's interesting that they would go to the lengths of um, setting up a GoFundMe for themselves. You know, when my wife was ill, somebody did that for me i don't really actually know how to do that for myself but i haven't i haven't really gotten pushed to that limit i don't know i don't think it's like we turn a switch and all of a sudden the economy is back where it was right i hate to tell (laughs) you yeah that's what i I think that's the hard part about all this that's it's i think a lot of people like you said are, are starting to think about now is that um I think we're all realizing that this isn't just going to be a light switch. This is going to be, this is going to be months and and possibly years. So, yeah. you know, that's uh, the that's the really frustrating part of it, Jasonica. Well, maybe we'll have a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> well, we heard about that miracle before. It was like miracles shouldn't be your plan A. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But. Alas, there have been no miracles, so we'll see. Yeah.
But I, I appreciate you talking about it. I know that you're probably tired of talking about this stuff, Jason, but it's good for people out there to know what uh, what you guys are facing. And I, I, well, I, I appreciate you kind of keeping us in the loop and uh, letting people know what's going on with us because uh, I know there's tons of independent stores out there that are all feeling just as bad as I am. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's great if you can work from home and kind of keep your job the way it always was. Yeah. If you can't, then that becomes a real problem. So, um, and especially with such a social thing like this, I can't even imagine what restaurants are going to do if you have to sit next to somebody and move your mask to shove food in your mouth or whatever. I don't know. But, I, I'm uh, just wondering, like, um, there's a really famous Italian restaurant and out in, uh, San Francisco, it's been around for 45 years. They just announced they're closing. Um, they're, they're like a, a legend. Um, then you have like the Amoeba Records thing. You also have um, the Sandpiper down in Wildwood is, is closing. They're probably one of the most famous ho hotel motels in, in New Jersey from their time. They've been around for, again, <clears throat> you know, decades and decades and decades. Um, and, and they're closing. So what happens to all these people that are working there? That's the thing. They're they're all going to lose their jobs. So it's it's like this. Uh, you're starting to see this uh, ripple effect, and um, it's it's going to be it's going to be a long ripple, I think. Yeah. So. Someone should have seen this coming. Jason Attica, always appreciate uh, his uh, wise uh, just uh, perspectives on everything going on in the industry and, and certainly how record store dealers like him are are dealing with it. So we, we certainly hope for the best uh, for, you know, any uh, every small business out there. But uh, And the guy's really taking it on the chin and he still still tries to be upbeat. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's why we right. like talking to because he's he's so upbeat and and you know has a positivity even yeah. even in these uh, these times you need all the positivity you can get you know yeah and uh, and speaking of that uh, there's music uh, made to, uh, to give us something to think about and bring us all together well I mean times. yeah I uh, I was <clears throat> I was, work, I was uh, driving around yesterday and I swung by uh, one of Philadelphia's premier concert venues uh, Union Transfer and uh, it's boarded up. Mm. And on top of the boards, uh, spray paint, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's been tagged and graffiti. And um, I was sitting there reading the bill of all the groups that were going to play this month. And it just kind of kind of hit home with me. It kind of got me a little bummed. I realized mm. that how are they paying for this building right now? How are they paying for anything? I mean, how are they paying for the last artists that were just here? And, yeah in early March mm. uh, the last show there I think was they might be giants on March 13th mm. but and that's that's it that, that Friday night wow. um, it's been closed for seven weeks um, it, it just um, it makes me wonder you know are they if we keep doing this and it's probably as you know as art said and other other people are saying it's gonna be a while till we can all go in a building together mm -hmm. uh, what are they gonna do yeah. yeah, and um, they're saying that now that it's multi-billion dollars uh, in losses across yeah. the country, and uh, it may go up to a trillion wow. in, in concert revenue, and 
and stuff like that if we keep every you know and I can see it sadly like it's it's terrible we've been at this for almost two months and Mm. yeah we get into June you know I don't know yeah but uh, it, it really makes me like wonder if something can be done or whatever but uh, the artists are uh, <clears throat> basically turned into streaming concerts um, from their houses to pay the bills that's uh, that's one of the solutions right mm-hmm. now for artists uh, the venues I don't know I'm I'm worried but Bloomberg.com a few days ago put out a really really good article by Lucas Shaw basically talking about um, how bands are uh, <clears throat> playing home home shows and uh, there's a possibility that some of these may be uh, you know subscription shows and they can actually make money um, they're streaming live live on a website called stage it where fans can buy tickets to see musician play sets for a police pre-selected price plus tips if they like the show so the typical stage it viewer pays about $15 and the ticket prices are flexible mm. so um, it's a digital crowd so it's not going to be like uh, screaming and yelling in between the songs and at a concert they can type in woo and yah and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> and um, flames for a candle yeah, and flames for a candle and, um, I'm not trying to laugh but it is kind of funny <laughs> and uh, you know I, I've been watching Kimmel, I've been watching Fallon, I've been mm-hmm. watching um, Bill Maher, uh, try to, to get a handle yeah. on how these guys are trying to deal with Stephen Colbert. I've watched all these shows. Bill Maher adds in It's so uh, weird. He, he it, adds in like You have to sound admit, effects. it's, it's yeah. very weird. It is. And it's what, really but what isn't weird nowadays, basically. Yeah. And um, that's, that's where we are right now. Um, it says here in Bloomberg's article, the coronavirus pandemic has shut down the live music business altogether. Promoters, venues, and musicians around the world have postponed or canceled more than 50,000 shows. From coffee house appearances to Coachella, the unofficial start of the summer festival season, at least $2.8 billion in ticket sales will be gone for good if there are no shows in the second quarter of this year. That Now, let's go back to That's that. You just, said you said from the coffee... Now, people don't forget... I. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. Yep. A lot of it, you know, yeah, the artist that makes a little bit of money, you know, maybe a few hundred bucks or maybe that, you know. Playing in front of 25 yeah, people. Exactly. While they're eating, yeah. drinking their and French I, press coffee. Yeah. And I, I love, I used to go to those, we had a couple in Michigan yep. I, I would go to. I love that. That's from all the, small all the way down to the big shows. Everybody. Uh, Polestar says a lost ticket revenue could easily surpass $5 billion if there are no shows until the fall. If we go into next year, you just do the math. We're getting up, you know, we're getting way up there. Yeah. Um, so, who knows? Uh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti says the city may hold off on large events until 2021. So we're we're already going to be in the mm. maybe 15 billion dollar range. Wow. For losses, Live Nation, the world's largest concert promoter, uh, has seen its share on the stock market uh, price. I'll redo that. Live Nation Entertainment, the world's largest concert promoter, has seen its stock market share price cut roughly in half. They've lost about $7 billion in market value. Wow. Uh, So that's that's so many jobs. 
Yeah. I mean, countless bars, clubs, and ticket sellers mm -hmm. are at People risk of insolvency, yeah. and uh, and many have laid off employees. Uh, you have sound technicians, drivers, and backup dancers all out of work, and no one stands to lose more money than the artists who collect the vast majority of the ticket sales. Um, and Mitch Glazer, uh, chief executive officer of the Recording Industry Association of America, says, quote, According to Bloomberg, it's a desperate situation, unquote. Mm. Um, so, not to be a bummer, but just saying uh, they're trying different things. And uh, Amazon is their Twitch uh, channel. They're going to, they're gonna, we're working with MTV to start uh, trying to host concerts. Mm. So, everyone's trying to think outside the box right now, and everybody's scrambling to do so because. Um, we, we we want these guys around. You know? Yeah, we, it's, we it's want our entertainment. Yeah. It's our livelihood. I mean, it's their livelihood. It's our livelihood. Mm -hmm. It's everybody's. And um, you know, I'm like you. I go to a lot of shows, and it's part of who I am. And mm -hmm. just so strange. Yeah, it's really. I was weird. supposed to have gone to four or five shows already this month. Yeah, so. I would have had at least two. Yeah. So just. Uh, Hopefully the, the streaming shows will, will come out in uh, different formats, different places here and there, and we'll keep doing these benefit shows. Um, but at some point, um, these guys got to make money, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. The Scorpions are recording an album because the Scorpions are loaded, but a younger artist that does not have the revenue and the money sitting around right. to do so, mm -hmm. you know. Can't do that. Yeah. They can't do that. They could they could play a show and you know do a Facebook stream or something, but nobody you know they have maybe their friends right you know maybe a few yep. people who know of them, but you know it kind of makes you wonder for smaller artists you know when something's trending on social media, you know I, I kind of wonder do you think younger artists uh, or maybe maybe not younger but artists who are not as big if they play a show for an hour online they might get traffic random traffic maybe yeah but you don't you don't know it's um but you you got to ask yourself too like the South by Southwest was that week of the 12th. Mm -hmm. So if they would have held that, yeah. they would have gone on and held it. How many people might have died oh my God, from being right. at that show? And how quickly, That's true. much more quickly would the virus have taken off in the South yeah. oh and all gosh. over the world? Yep. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> would have spread all across the South. Yeah, the South wouldn't be reopening now, I don't think. Yeah, because know? I read uh, an article um, this week where there's a uh, African-American ski club that meets... In different places all over the country and they met uh in, in out out west i think it was in colorado and three of the guys are dead oh my god in a small group and Ugh. so uh, like several i mean uh, several people yeah. in, in the ski club got coronavirus yeah and, same thing with the, a ballroom dancing group in detroit you know several people died a senior bunch of senior citizens great Classy folks who love to dance and spend time with each other, and, and yeah. a quarter of them are gone. How's Detroit handling this right now? Are they doing they're, a lot better. Uh, they're doing a little bit better, I think. I mean, they, they're they've they're hanging in there. I mean, Detroit was really, you know, those urban centers are really struggling, you know. Yes. Um, but uh, the suburbs, I mean, it it, it kind of hit or miss. But uh, I mean, they're doing a little bit better. It seems at least. I talked to family up there and. People are feeling, on average, a little bit better about things, but it, it really kind of depends on where you are, you yeah. know. I, I, I mean, they're certainly not out of the woods yet, though. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, I gotta, I'll, I'll say this. Um, 
people really need to start playing by the rules here yeah. if you want to get out of this thing. Yeah. If you want to work again, if if you want to see the light of day, mm -hmm. uh, because the way things are going, um, it's been a little little disappointing. Yeah. No, I agree with opinion. you. There's I, a, yeah. There's a, there was video circulating uh, Sunday of a huge house party in Chicago, and uh, maybe a third of the people were wearing masks, mm -hmm. and it was shoulder to shoulder, and there's weed smoke, you know, yeah. proliferating all over all over the room i mean i mean come on people i mean and, and people are just kind of going to you know i i do my best when i have to go outside i make my i go out of my way to get out of people's way you right. know uh and and there's so many people not doing that and there, not covering their faces there's runners and, and it's all over yeah, the place it's yeah. all over it's not it's it's all over people it's everywhere are, yeah and it's just uh a matter of um taking care of your neighbor and yeah. and looking out for the person that's walking down the street next to you mm -hmm. um they might not make it out of this alive yeah and when it's, you're going for your jog in the afternoon not to be preachy but uh think of them you know when you're going for that run you know and you're plowing through a crowded street where people are trying to walk six feet apart it, and i saw it all all over today and it was very frustrating for me and i had to uh unload on somebody because they brushed against me and you know face to face with masks on but i mean come on this is not what we do yeah, it's not who we are right now it, the turn you not have even to, close yeah you you have to have a uh social um social responsibility you know right. i mean with social distancing comes social responsibility so yeah it looks like jenny Oh uh, yeah, it's a friend of ours out there. A lot of friend of, friends of ours out there. Well, she's but what's going on? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you're seeing friends of ours everywhere. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, we have we have some uh, concerts online and uh, streaming concerts to look forward to, yep. and let's see where this takes us. Maybe it'll be a yeah, a, a, just a groundbreaking uh, level of concerts put mm -hmm. on. For our benefit but we got to yeah and, and but for the real thing we got to get there and we got to get there with everybody doing their part yeah. you know i mean it's not going to happen like that's the thing none of this is not nothing's going to get back to things are not going to get back to normal no. until every person does their part i mean right. that's when that's how you expedite this yeah you know well and, and, yeah. and please um you know uh right in uh we'd like to know would you be willing to pay 15 bucks to see a streaming concert mm-hmm of one of your bands yeah and and more if uh if you think the show was good is that something that you would pay for i'm, I'm curious to see if people would actually do that you know yeah, it's interesting it's interesting yeah to so, see what people say yeah right diamond dave right my right uh me we're both on twitter mm -hmm. look us up it's very easy to find us yeah do it and uh hit our twitter page uh, at rock nations dk that's right oh um, yes before we uh before we go, um, you know, some sad news. Uh, you know, we heard from uh, Dr. Art Kaplan, NYU Bioethics. Uh, you know, he was on the show last week and just gave us so much information and so much knowledge on um, uh, coronavirus and, and when we're going to be out of the woods and how it's, it's still a long way to go. And um, He's been such a force in yeah, helping yeah. others understand what's going on. He's been interviewed by everybody, CNN, MSNBC. Yep. So much NBC. CNN the night after we had him on the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's an amazing mind. And uh, 
Go ahead, Dave. It's the, yeah, it's the well, first thing I found out this you, morning. You said you could say you sent it to me. I mean, yeah. you know, you can. It was really sad, you know. Well, we uh, we don't have a whole lot of information, but Art uh, passed along on uh, Facebook this morning that his uh, mother passed away from complications of COVID nineteen, and uh, the show, Dave and I, yep. uh, are heartbroken for Art, and uh, we're we're sending along our condolences. And our, our deepest sympathies to him and his family at this time. Yeah, just, I mean, it's hard, so hard to imagine what he's going through, what his family's going through. And, you know, he taught us so much. I mean, he, he, he has such an incredibly busy schedule. He gave us, you know, 15 minutes, uh, 20 minutes, really, which was very valuable time. And I was, we were so appreciative of it. And uh, he taught us so much, you know, I think. Yeah. And really put this in perspective and, and, and to have this touch him personally, you know. I don't know if there's any other way that this could hit. It can't hit much closer to home, I'm sure. No, it than can't. Like this and, and uh, you, you just know. feel it, 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 to lose a parent in something like this uh, has got to be surreal because you can't have a goodbye in the conventional sense of goodbye, mm -hmm. and um, you have to resort to you know cell phones if they even have one. Like yeah. my mom has a flip phone, and I haven't seen my mother in in eight weeks, mm. so. Because um, the week before this started, I, we couldn't go back because uh, my son had had practices, which was rare. He mm. had it on both days, so I didn't get to go back. And um, you know, it's just uh, I talk to her every day, but as you know, it's not the same. Right. And it's very frustrating. And for for Art to have to go through something like this, well, we just wanted to say how sorry we were, yep. Art. And. Uh, God bless. So here's what Dr. Kaplan told us, a little bit of what he told us last week uh, uh, about this virus and why we all, we should all be taking this seriously. I'll tell you one other thing I'm worried about. You know, the rest of health did not stop. So there are people getting cancer, getting ALS, MS, car accidents, injuries, and the healthcare system swung over to take care of uh, the people with the uh, viral infections. But two things happened. One, now there are people out there who have whose cancers got worse because they didn't get treated as soon as they would have, and that's that could be nasty. And a lot of research that we're doing on diseases, we're now just doing on this uh, new coronavirus, and that means we stopped doing research on a lot of other diseases, whether it's diabetes or uh, preventing heart attacks or whatever, and that's bad news. So, you know, all the changes that bother us, it doesn't just have to be a new bug coming out of somewhere. It's when the whole world's resources divert to fight this thing, there are things that get put on the side. I, I didn't think about that. You're right. So that could, there's a major impact there, too. Is that why this is um, deadly for some people, very serious for others, and symptoms mild for other people? It just mm. depends on what the, what's the term comorbidity, I think, or just all of the – it depends on kind of the general health situation going in? It does. We know that it's worse – if you have, let's say, chronic lung disease, if you were a vapor and damaged your lungs, this thing attacks your lungs, that's not good for you at any age. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, also if you have hypertension, heart problems, even old age itself is kind of a predictor of not doing well with this thing. There are people who definitely survive it, 80, 90 years old, but a lot don't. So that signals that frailty and uh, a weaker immune system is trouble, and that happens with age. You don't see many kids dying, thankfully, and uh, even a lot of people out there who are relatively healthy got it, didn't show symptoms even. 
If you want to worry about one other thing, though, once this virus gets into you, I have a little bit of concern that maybe it could come back and do something later. Remember, AIDS did that. There were people who oh, yeah. got it, and they seemed to be okay, and then whammo, it flared up again. Hepatitis did that before we got medicine for that. So even if you're young, let's say you're a baby and you get it, you seem to be okay, but then you sort of think, yeah, what's going to happen 20, 30 years from now? Remember Zika? Yep. Kids got infected, but you didn't really see the brain damage for a couple of years. So that, I'm not lying awake at night worrying about it, but it's a vague worry I have. Well, Dr. Kaplan, many thanks uh, to you. And here we are, uh, another full show uh, in the can, and we covered it all. It's what we do. I hope, I hope this is helping everybody out. And uh, some of this information helps you and makes you realize that, you know, we, we're still t- we got to take this very serious. Yep. I know that there's some stuff opening up at the end of this week and next week and the week after that, but you gotta, you really gotta look out for other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I'm hoping we're getting that across because we want to all see this over at the same time. Mm-hmm. We all want it just as bad as the next person. So, yeah. but we all gotta look out for one another too. We're all in this together. We we really are, and and you know, I think. Um, in the meantime, you know, if we can do this, it certainly helps me to kind of, I think it helps all of us to decompress, talk about music and talk about the things we love. And uh, I think that it's just a big help. I think that really helps to yep. uh, get us through this. And, uh, you know, until next week, keep on rocking. Ow! Yeah. <laughs>